Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. A strange thing happens to me as I fall asleep these nights. I am back on the road outside my childhood home. Every pillar and post is in sharp focus. The russet red of the brick wall, the green painted gate. It's summertime. There's a scent of privet in the air. Outside our front door, the baby is strapped into his pram. He is golden brown with the sun and wears a lemon seersucker romper suit. When my mother takes his shoes off at night, there's a band of white across his instep where the sun doesn't reach. She always kisses this white band, which makes the baby laugh. He wears a harness of pale blue leather, the edges cut with the pinking shears, the inside soft like lamb's wool. He's just awakened from his nap and has hauled himself into a sitting position. He is quietly watching the children play. The girls are skipping out on the street, the rope turning briskly as the turners call, chase, chase, chase the hairy elephant. Each girl lines up and runs into the turning rope, takes two skips and leaps back out again. If a beat is missed, then she must sit along the curb and wait until a new game begins. Further along the road, my older sister plays piggy beds. The old polished tin skims and comes to rest neatly between the chalk marks. She hops from bed to bed, pushing the piggy before her with one foot. On the footpath, my brother and his friends hammer old skate wheels onto a plank of wood. Later, they will hurtle down the road, crashing at the bottom into O'Rourke's wall, because their truck has no steering device. They will tumble boyishly together, laugh off their cuts and scrapes, and go back to the drawing board. Another sister calls from the green. She has climbed to the top of the mailboat tree, so called because the mailboat can be seen leaving Dublin Port from its highest branches. Look how high up I am, she yells. Bumblebees flit from cloverhead to cloverhead. My mother comes out to the front step to check on the baby. She hands him a crust of batch loaf and calls to me. Keep an eye on him, there's a good girl. The front of her apron is filled with dressmaking pins, stuck hastily into the fabric. She has the makings of our summer dresses laid out on the living room floor and will spend the afternoon at the Singer sewing machine, her feet hammering like billio. Later, when we come in for our tea, I'll sweep away the cigarette butts she has lined up like soldiers along its edge. She is young and strong, six babies down, one more to go. On the front step, she takes in the location of each of her children with a glance. She is the queen of all she surveys, my father still beguiled. Her eyes linger on the skipping girls. Suddenly she leaves the front step and strides quickly towards them, a grin breaking out on her face. Bending to accommodate the turning rope, she leaps into it and takes six skips, one after the other, holding down her skirt with one hand. We children scream with delight. A skipping mother. Who would have thought a mother could skip? Our neighbour, Mrs Lowndes, who had been sitting quietly in her porch, comes abruptly to her feet at the commotion. Seeing my skipping mother, she leaves her porch, flies down her garden path and erupts onto the street. With a cry, she leaps into the turning rope 
and for a few glorious moments, the two mothers skipped together, laughing their heads off, each holding one arm under their bosoms to keep them still. Is there a day in the span of all our lives when the sun shines the brightest? A glory day, a golden day? Was this my mother's perfect day? A day that now, 60 years later, pushes into my mind as I fall asleep at night. Ah, don't be bringing me flowers, she used to say to me in her later years. They only die. Maybe what she wanted to say was, just bring me yourself. Sit down beside me. Talk to me. Remind me what it was like when for one brief moment the stars and the planets aligned to make a perfect day. A day when the mothers came out to skip. There is a time and place to sing a rebel song. My father picked exactly the wrong moment, so he thought. One morning during World War II, a few weeks before the Battle of the River Po in Italy in early 1945. My father had been sent back from the front to a small town called Benevento for extra training and to have a break from active service. Those involved in training were allowed to ride horses a pleasing bonus for my dad, who loved horses from his days of growing up in the countryside of County Leash. One morning in the stables, where my father was grooming his horse, he found himself singing The Wearing of the Green, a song he knew by heart by the age of six, from listening to a local farmhand known as Pat Purcell, who used to sing it when he groomed the horse that pulled my father's family's trap from Timahoe to Stradbally or further afield. Pat Purcell would sing it in a sort of nasal rhythmic baritone which my father was now imitating. Overwhelmed by nostalgia, my father's inhibitions left him and his singing voice grew louder till he could be heard well outside the stable. It didn't occur to him that someone passing by might think the words of the song epitomising English tyranny, were much more suitable to the German war effort than the Allied one. But singers are a law unto themselves. My dad had reached the section of the song where the words say, Then since the colour we must wear is England's cruel red, sure Ireland's sons will ne'er forget the blood that they have shed. When he saw a glint of light beneath and the other side of, his horse's belly. The light was shimmering from the most beautifully polished riding boots he'd ever seen. He stopped singing, raised his head, and peered over the top of the horse. He saw at once the person in those boots was a British officer of high rank. He stood to attention, his hand saluting the officer like a mousetrap snapping shut. Seconds later, he could see 
he was staring at the face of General Alexander. Or General Sir Harold Rupert Leofric George Alexander, to give him his full name, who looked exactly like his photograph. Alexander was now Allied Supreme Commander of the Mediterranean. This was the top man. My dad felt like a Roman soldier staring at Julius Caesar or a French musketeer looking at Napoleon. My father knew that Alexander must have heard him singing the rebel song. The frightful pause as the general's ice-blue eyes penetrated my father's skull did nothing to help the sensation that the firm ground in the stable was turning into a sucking bog. Then Alexander said coolly, You must be Irish, and you clearly like horses. My father played a straight bat. Yes, sir, I'm Irish, and I do like horses. My father waited for a reprimand for the treasonous song, but Alexander simply asked him what part of Ireland he came from. And when he learned my dad had gone to school at Batora in County Fermanagh, he suddenly got misty-eyed and reminisced about his family home in Caledon and County Tyrone. My dad could see he loved the place, and both men then discovered they had fished in Loch Urn and been on similar long walks in the same countryside. My father found himself relaxing with this godlike figure. For a few minutes, they were not soldiers of different ranks, but men enjoying memories of the Irish landscape. Then suddenly it seemed as if Alexander had remembered his status, and the conversation became more clipped and icy. The general turned on his heel, and my father saluted him. Just before Alexander left the stable, for some reason my father blurted out, Good luck, sir. Alexander stopped and turned around and replied, And good luck to you, too. Then he gave my dad a curt nod and disappeared around the corner. And so both of them rejoined the Dantian hell of fighting in Italy. But maybe this encounter, brought about by a rebel song, relieved them of the weight of war for just a minute or so and let them stroll off to the woodlands of Tyrone or fishing in Loch Arran. She came into the world early, impatient, raring to go. It was a fittingly dramatic affair. Her dad was due to be on stage that evening, twice that evening to be precise, in Galway, on the opposite coast. We'd later learned that the gang waited in the pub from the afternoon on for an update on her. 
causing trouble before she even got here. I was on the massage table in the salon when I finally accepted what was happening. I was too polite to interrupt her work despite the growing pain and the diminishing time between contractions because yes, Claire, that's what that is. You are in labour. I still paid for my massage, mind. I could hear the disbelief in my husband's voice. Okay, call your sister, call the midwife, then call me back. The contractions were two and a half minutes apart now and they were definitely real. By the time I got to the back of my sister's car, who had gotten to me in record time, I thought she'd be born there. He was on his way. The company knew and the shows would be cancelled and boy would I be in trouble if this was a false alarm. But she was coming and she seemed in quite the hurry. Maternity hospital staff are calm angels. Nothing phases them. He is through Enfield, flooring it, no doubt. My sister told him to put his hazards on and drive in the hard shoulder. The midwife told me not to be holding on for Dad now. This baby was coming and I was to tell her if I needed to push. They didn't think he'd make it. He arrived, just as the pain relief kicked in. He was the real relief. We put on Christmas FM and all was calm. I pushed and pushed and pushed. The doctor thought I'd need help, but my angel midwife, real life angels they are, she thought I could do it. She asked for a couple more minutes, and she was right. And she was here. And immediately, I knew her. Till that very moment, the whole thing had been so abstract. Yes, I could feel her moving around in there. Yes, we'd bought the bits and pieces and done the online classes. And in theory, I knew she was coming. But in that moment... I knew her. I recognised her presence. She felt so very familiar to me. I've yet to find the words to describe the wave that came over me. Not love, as people say, but I felt certain. Sure, she was ours, and that although I didn't know what I was doing yet, I'd figure it out. Utter calm. But she was little, so she had to go. Away from me, but he could go, but I had to go to surgery, complications. I had to go away from her. And is that completely necessary? Yes, okay, whatever she needs. He got to go with her and I was glad of that. And when I got out of theatre, he got to come back to me, but then neither of us were with her and no one was with the dog and my blood pressure and where are her clothes and when can I see her again? And can I get that tea and toast now that everyone goes on about? And I have a picture of him with it, you know, the tea and toast and the moustache that he had for the show. And an angel nurse told me I could see her once I could walk again. I should sleep a little and she would come and get me at 5am on the dot. And she did and she brought me to her and there she was. Toasty and warm and tiny and mine. She got to come back to me soon after and I don't remember what we did exactly but I didn't sleep for days. I sat watching her because I was so tired that if I slept maybe I wouldn't hear her and the less I slept the more tired I got so the riskier it was to sleep and so I just didn't for about eight months. Her name is Ada Sue.
None of us know where she got the idea, or if this was something brought on by divine inspiration. But sometime in the mid-1960s, when I was only a nipper, my mother embarked on a new needlecraft project. She had always been an enthusiastic embroideress and craftswoman, maintaining an impressive production line of wall hangings, pictures, socks, quilts and tablecloths. What on earth have you started this time? My father is said to have muttered as she explained the project. Guests were coming to dinner, and she was laying the table using a white king-size bedsheet, folded in half to make it fit the considerably-sized dining table. I'm asking everyone who has dinner with us to sign their name on this tablecloth. Then I'll go over it in backstitch, a different colour thread for each name, and the ink will come out in the wash. All right, girl, embroider this, my mother was told by the first signatory, who wrote her three initials and double-barreled surname in swirling cursive, complete with underline, in the centre of the virginal cloth. That first signature was immortalised in vibrant green thread and often pointed out to subsequent guests as the perfect example, before they were handed the biro to make their mark. And so the tablecloth's crowdsourced pattern grew steadily in the years that followed. My grandparents, aunts and uncles were among the first contributors, alongside my mother's many friends. As time went on, their names were surrounded by those of their children, and in turn, some of these were accompanied by their partners. Context is everything, even on a tablecloth, as it turns out. The name Peter, without a surname, would have us scratching our heads, if it weren't for the more familiar names of Peter's parents floating close by. Even though I was not yet able to write my own name, I decided that I should take part in this ritual nonetheless, and my unintelligible scribble was faithfully rendered in bright blue thread. When I eventually did learn to write, I was given a second chance, and so I became one of only two people to sign the famed tablecloth twice. The other was one of my mother's friends, who may have feigned ignorance when she was told about the project, just so that she could do it again. Or maybe so much time had passed since the first signing, that old age had erased the memory, but not the signature. After the signing ceremony, my mother would usually ask the signee in which colour they would like to have their name rendered. Combined with some graphology, one might have been able to describe the different personalities represented on the table linen. The self-confident swirl in bright red of an extrovert standing out loudly alongside the tiny scribble in pale yellow of a timid recluse, almost invisible against the white cloth. When a name appeared on the tablecloth, it became a matter of historical significance. After the inevitable break-up with my first girlfriend, I insisted that history be rewritten by removing her name from the signature cloth, as it had become known by then. My mother refused to be part of this falsification of the facts, but reluctantly agreed that I do it myself. Wielding a device that looked like a miniature harpoon, I removed every thread of evidence, in the most literal sense, that my ex had sat at our table. As the years went by, the chances of welcoming a dinner guest who had not yet signed the cloth became less and less. Still, it remained in the dresser's drawer, always ready to welcome a new name on its canvas of fame. Eventually the day arrived when my mother was no longer able to lay the table for her visitors, as she herself had become a long-term guest at the nursing home where the table was laid for her. By the time she passed away at the age of 96, Almost 250 souls had signed her tablecloth. My sister had been keeping it safe, in the same dresser where it had always lived, 
she came up with the wonderful suggestion to give it one last public outing while restoring it somewhat to its original purpose as a bedsheet. So, as my mother lay in her coffin, her legs and feet were covered not by the usual frilly satin sheet supplied by undertakers, but by her own needlework she so carefully maintained for more than 50 years. And so she was laid to rest, surrounded by the names of those who broke bread with her. Patrick alone on the reek. Pagan mountain, holy loaf of sugar, Patrick's mind in restless prayer. Cloud clots his beard like doubt, hail drives nails into his homespun back. Green drumlins frolic in the bay, the saint's heart soars, heather bounces beneath his leathered feet. A bright sun breeze sets free the scent of gorse. Ravens tumble, Glory be. I arise today through the strength of heaven, light of sun, radiance of moon, splendor of fire, speed of Swiftness of wind, depth of the sea. My father Oliver Regan was well known for his ability to test the patience of a saint. But if there was one who had his back, it was St. Patrick. Their bromance stretches as far back as my memory of him, my father, not St. Patrick. Each March, murmurs would begin to reverberate around the house about Dad's entry into the annual parade in Bundorn. The eventual float would involve some or all of the following. A donkey or horse and cart, whatever battered pickup he happened to be driving that year, a handful of wains, his trusty band of dogs, and some unusual items he or my mother had magpied over the course of their lifetimes. They both had a keen interest in collectibles. Queen of the thrift shop and car boot sale, my mother May's taste was and remains eclectic. It ranges from antiques and vintage clothing, what we used to call second hand, through to oddities, conversation pieces and anything that could be used for dressing up. If an item was a bit bawdy and could elicit a snigger, all the better. My father's taste was less discerning and included anything that someone else didn't want, was trying to get rid of or was willing to give away for free. The result was that our home and farm in Leitrim was packed with some truly diverse gems, intermingled with useless junk. From this house of curiosities, a concept or theme might emerge. It usually materialised around one standout item. Case in point, when the fairground in Bundorn was decommissioning some of its old attractions, my father acquired several of the motorbikes and horses from the merry-go-round, 
multiple bumper cars and an enormous model ape with arms outstretched from which two swings used to hang. The latter, it was immediately obvious, would be the star feature of Dad's entry into that year's parade. On the big day, the ape was hoisted into the back of the pickup, caged within some items found around the house, bed frames, silage trailer cages, gates, adorned with a selection of grandchildren and finished off with a homemade sign painted, King Kong Takes Bundorn. Once upon a time it sufficiently pleased my father to just turn up in the pony and trap with little more than a scatter of children and dogs and a good whiskey buzz. He would John Wayne his way down the main street, shooting double-barrelled wisecracks at the spectators who lined the streets. But all that changed in 1986, when my family were recruited to man a real float with real costumes and real props. It was inspired by the popular harp lager ad at the time, in which a bunch of marauding Norsemen would break into an Irish drinking tavern and declare, We have come because we heard about the hop. Thanks to his considerable beard, my father was known locally as Harry Reagan. My two eldest brothers, Ollie and John, were so bushy back then they looked like Grizzly Adams mashed with Robert Plant circa 1973. The trio certainly looked like Vikings and occasionally dressed and acted like them too. It was the easiest job a casting agent ever had. Some creative people converted a boat to look remarkably like a Viking longship and made some quality costumes and wooden weaponry. We three youngest brothers, Gordon, Stuart and myself, aged about ten at the time, along with my nephew Jason, got thrown in as part of the bargain. We were draped in our mother's furs and handed carved wooden swords and shields, and I remember well the thrill when ours was announced the best float at the end of the celebrations. But that day, when Dad led us, his band of invading Vikings into Donegal wasn't the peak of his St. Patrick's Day achievements. In 1997, he achieved national notoriety. I don't know whose idea the concept for his entry into the parade was that year, but I like to think it was the donkeys. The hook was an old pub sign, acquired from God knows where, declaring Guinness for strength. The usual suspects, a donkey and cart, were as ever in the mix, it was just a case of putting them together, but with a twist. And the rest is part of our family history. That RTE's cameras happened to select Bundorn that year for some regional St. Patrick's Day coverage meant that my father featured on the 6 and 9 o'clock news. But even if the cameras had not been there to capture the moment, I'd see it in my mind's eye forever. My father pulling the ass cart down the main street of Bundorn. The harness hanging around his neck, his chest bulging, his eyes wild. Behind him, travelling in style in the cart, our donkey Jack, graciously taking a standing ovation from the braying crowd. And Dad's beaming smile, telling the world there was nowhere else he'd rather be, and that no one enjoyed making an ass of himself quite like him. 
Now Delaney had the donkey that everyone admired Temporarily lazy and permanently tired A leg at every corner balancing his head And a tail to let you know which end he wanted to be fed Riley slyly said we've underrated it Why not train it? Then they took a rag They rubbed it, scrubbed it, they oiled and embricated it Got to to the post and when the starter dropped the flag There was Riley pushing it, shoving it, shushing it Hogan, Logan and everyone in town Lined up attacking it and shoving it and smashing it They had to be The road into the Besborough mother and baby home stretched out long and grey before me when I arrived there in August 1985. Flanked on either side by fields where cows grazed, the old house had sweeping views over the Douglas estuary and had once been the home of a prominent Cork Quaker family. In 1922, it was bought by the Sisters of Sacred Heart Order of Nuns and became one of the first of the new state's institutional answers to the perceived problem of unmarried mothers. The nun who admitted me asked what name I wanted to have. It transpired that the girls in Besborough were assigned house names as we worked on a first name basis only, but I asked if I could keep mine as no one else had the same one. I soon discovered that everything was cloaked in secrecy. For the sake of the neighbours, the Dublin girls were doing a course in London and the Kerry girls were doing a course in Dublin. Nuns took letters and had them posted in England to add authenticity to this story. I was just six miles from home and I was confused. We settled in and we formed a bond our little group of fallen women, as some no doubt would have regarded us. We worked in the convent and in the nursery. Some of us studied for our leaving cert. We scrubbed floors and at night we knitted. We adapted without question to the strange ways of the home and the strange people who lived there. Just a few girls passing through, but there were others who had come and never left. Old women now who were institutionalised and screamed in the night. It was a strange time in the 1980s. Ireland felt like it was caught between worlds. While we scrubbed floors in a mother and baby home, we also did an ankle pottery course listening to Elton John on the radio. We went to Mass in the chapel and then afterwards tried to play pool, which is difficult with a bump. And we chatted all the time, but not about where we came from or giving away any details that would identify our families. Deep down, we all knew none of us would be leaving there with our babies. But we still sat on each other's beds and talked and fantasised about a different future where we could just walk out of there with our babies and go home. The few grainy Polaroids I have of the time show rosy-cheeked women sitting on beds, no Instagram posing here, all looking so young. Young mothers. Autumn was beautiful that year, with coloured leaves and mist settling on the far hills that I could see from my window. All the time I was growing and cradling my bump and wanting time to stop because my baby was with me and part of me. My art teacher from school brought me in paint and paper and I tried to capture the colours and stop time. But nothing stops the tide and I couldn't suspend time. My baby was born in December, a shock of black hair and perfect in every way. I stared, 
mesmerised. I was a mother. This was a fundamental change. Tectonic plates had shifted and life would never be the same. And when I left the home and left my baby to be adopted, the changes travelled with me. To boarding school in West Cork, to college, to working abroad, to settling down, to a new family. The notion that any of us would be able to put it all behind us was laughable, unthinkable, impossible. It would be another two decades before we found each other again, achingly alike. And I often wonder about those women whose real names I don't know and where they are now. Young women who must have returned white-faced to their families and communities around Ireland, sidestepping awkward questions about their absences, their fictional courses. How did you get on in London? Or did everyone know? Did everyone just play along with the line they were spun? Young mothers who kept their secret and were denied the recognition of that most seismic change that had occurred. But still mothers. And so today, I salute the girls that I knew as Rose from Tralee, Sheila from Killarney, Jane from Dublin and Claire from Cork. And I wish you all a happy Mother's Day. On this morning's programme, we heard Skipping Mothers by Maeve Edwards The Wearing of the Green by James Harper Ada Sue by Claire Monnelly The Tablecloth was by Pierre Cowpers Patrick Alone on the Reek A Poem by Geraldine Mitchell When St Patrick's Day Made a Donkey's Year by Colin Regan And Happy Mother's Day by Claire Garvey the music was Songs My Mother Taught Me by Dvorak, played on violin by Joshua Bell. The Wearing of the Green, sung by John McCormack. Nocturne Number no. 1 in E-flat major by John Field, played on piano by Elizabeth Joy Rowe. Music Box by Renee Aubrey. The Deer's Cry by Sean Davey, featuring Rita Connolly on vocals. And Delaney's Donkey sung by Val Dunican. And a book you might be interested in, James Harper's recent novel, The Pathless Country, winner of the J.G. Farrell Award, is published by Cinnamon Press. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. To listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio player or the programme website, rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday hyphen Miscellany. You can also follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter and all the usual podcast platforms. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.